Is the Supreme Court set to overturn Roe v. Wade? CCP caves in as 12 Chinese companies facing delisted from the United States Stock Exchange. What's the lesson for the United States to learn from? Beijing seeks to normalize mandatory weekly COVID testing. Horror video from Shanghai, an old man getting stuffed into a body bag while alive. The scream of Shanghai video is going viral after the sound of April. Hi everyone, welcome to the Win Cathy Show. Uh, today it will be just myself. Wei is on the business trip again. But uh, do you know, actually Wei will have a joke to share with you, but through me, okay? So please um, stay with me and uh, we'll tell, I will tell the joke and the two, you will judge if that's as good as Wei tells. So first of all, uh, a quick news. Politico published a Supreme Court draft ruling written on February 10th, but has since leaked. The ruling was written by Justice Alito and would overturn Roe v. Wade. The, uh, the abortion rights mandated, mandated by the then Supreme Court in 1973. For the details, we will have uh, more reporting to you in our next show. So today's uh, major story I will share with you is um, about the Chinese companies listed in the U.S. Stock Exchange. Tomorrow, May 3rd, is the deadline for 12 Chinese companies on the watch list for delisting from the U.S. Stock Exchange to, unless they can prove that they have met the conditions for listing. The United States Securities and Exchange Commission made that announcement back on April 12th. A total of 23 Chinese companies are currently included in this watch list. So what's the latest move by Beijing to try to keep these companies, the Chinese companies, to continue listing in the United States? According to people familiar with the matter, reported by Voice America, the Chinese and the U.S. regulators are discussing the operational details of an audit agreement that Beijing hopes to sign this year, including on-site audit checks. The Chinese Security Regulatory Commission was reportedly saying that uh, in early April that it plans to revise the regulations on confidentiality and the file management related to the overseas listing of domestic companies and to facilitate cross-border regulatory cooperation, including joint inspections. And last week, the vice chair of the commission, Fang Xinghai, said that uh, he expected to reach an agreement in the near future to allow on-site audit inspections by the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, which is a U.S. regulating agency under SEC. So 
such a move was seen as China's uh, concessions to comply with U.S.'s regulatory requirement for the listing companies in the U.S. So why we had such a problem in the United States uh, listed Chinese companies to begin with? And uh, what does it say about the U.S.-China policy? What's the lesson for the United States in dealing with communist China from this incidence. So first of all, let's take a look at why this prop we had this problem. Before 2002, United States public companies, the brokers and the dealers are self-audited and self-regulated. But two big scandals changed that. In October 2001, a big scandal of fraud at Enron brought down the energy company and caused $63 billion of loss to the public. Along with it, the fall of Enron all also brought to the close of an 89-year-old big accounting firm, Arthur Anderson. Everybody knows about that. And in seven months, another big scandal at WorldCom brought down the telecom company and the three times as much loss which amounts to $180 billion to the U.S. public. Right after these two scandals, the U.S. Congress passed, uh, which is called the Sarbanes-Oxley Act in 2002 to establish Public Company Accounting Oversight Board to oversee the audit of public companies, brokers and the dealers registered with the SEC. During the second term of the Obama-Biden administration, China pleaded its case of having more access to the U.S. stock market to the then Vice President Joe Biden, who was a appointment that uh, Obama on many issues related to China and uh, frequently visited with Chinese leaders. At that time, Biden said in a speech, quote, I've held the view for so many years and continue to hold the view that a rise in China is a positive development. And Biden promised to work towards a resolution. So he said, quote, the trajectory of the relationship is nothing but positive, referring to with China, and it's overwhelmingly in the mutual interest of both of our countries. And he said, it's in the interest of the world that we increase the interaction between not only our business community, but our economies at large. And one month later, Biden penned an op-ed rejecting the notion that the communist China posed a threat to the U.S. supremacy and urging Americans to invest in Beijing's success. Within 18 months of that meeting and the op-ed, the Memorandum of Understanding was signed. So what's in the MOU? According to the MOU, China agrees to let the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board gain, quote, timely access to certain audit documents of its uh, homeland companies, but did not allow on-site audit firm inspections like those imposed on American firms, kicking that compliance issue down the road. In the end, 
China never allowed the inspections and mostly failed to comply with the document requests and essentially allowing the country's U.S.-listed firms to enjoy all the benefits of U.S. stock market access without the need to comply with Sarbanes-Oxley Act. The SEC and uh, the public company, the company accounting board, have been raised red flags since 2018, but its lack of action has drawn significant criticism. By April 2021, the board announced that more than 90% of the listed companies that refused to provide audit documents were Chinese companies. Things got changed with President Trump. In 2019, he said, oh, no, 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 we cannot keep letting the Chinese companies refusing to show us the, their books. So at the end of 2020, President Trump signed into effect the Holding Foreign Companies Accountability Accountable Act, which requires foreign companies listed on United States exchange to comply with U.S. auditing standards. Otherwise, they will be facing delisting. The Foreign Company Accountability Act prohibits foreign companies from listing on any U.S. exchange if they failed an audit by the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board for three consecutive years. So now the Biden administration is following through that policy. So the danger of China's uh, non-compliance with, uh, which triggered the enforcement by the Biden administration was dramatized by the spectacular collapse of a coffee company in China called uh, Luckin Coffee. Luckin Coffee went public on the United States Stock Exchange in 2019 and used Wall Street to raise a half billion dollars on the bold promise that it could become the Starbucks of China. The company collapsed about a year ago after investors were told its $12 billion valuation was based on inflated accounting. The company reported has admitted that it fabricated its 2019 revenue numbers. This created big political pressure to resolve the auditing problem. And uh, Luckin Coffee is only one of the 156 Chinese companies with a combined market capitalization of $1.2 trillion on the U.S. stock market. Other Chinese companies in this, um, in this uh, group include Alibaba Group Holding Company and China Petroleum and Chemical Corp. So here's, that's the story and the background. So what's the lesson for the U.S. to learn in dealing with the Communist China? I talked to General David Stilwell a while ago, but uh, I think this interview actually really applies to uh, what we are talking about today. If you remember, General Stilwell was the former Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of East Asian and the Pacific Affairs under the Trump administration. 
and prior to that, he served as the director of the China Strat Strategic Focus Group at the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command in Hawaii and was the Asian advisor for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. General Stilwell served in the Air Force for 35 years, spent time in Japan and Korea as a linguistic a linguist, a fight, fighter pilot, and a commander. He also served at the defense attaché at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing during 2011 to 2013. He is very familiar with how CCP works. So I just give you his conclusion, his summary of how to deal with CCP based on his understanding of the CCP. And he said, for you, you know, towards the CCP, you cannot, United States cannot just take normal diplomacy, but to use transactional diplomacy. So what does that mean? He will explain. And uh, General uh, Stilwell started with our interview talking about the turning point of dealing with the CCP differently for the United States after decades of appeasing the communist regime, which was started by the Trump administration. But in 2017, the, the Trump administration published the national security strategy in which we defined China as a strategic competitor, which that's just you know, stating a fact. Um, and that I think was the true beginning of getting the American government and American people to look at this problem differently. Yeah, I really would like to uh, address this issue. Um, but, you know, going back to what happened on Tiananmen Square in 1989, how do you think United States and the international world, their reaction had an impact on what's happening in China? Uh, let, me, let me fast forward to 2016, uh, when the Philippines uh, took the PRC to court, the International Tribunal on the Law of the Sea, and they said that Chinese actions in the South China Sea are illegal. The maritime claims of the entire Nine Dash Line were not legal. And the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea came back and said, Philippines is correct, that what China was doing was illegal. The American response was not good. The American response was, it's fine, China, it's okay, let's turn the page. That's the language they said, is let's turn the page. And basically said, For, it's okay, we're not going to stick with that. We're going to walk away from this judgment and we're going to continue to try to work with you on environment and these other things. We did the exact same thing. That was a democratic government. That was John Kerry. But we, the, the Bush administration, the Republican administration, did the exact same thing in 1990. Is we said, we have to take some action, China, but we're going to make it the minimum we have to and let's get back to building the relationship. Um, that may end up not have been the best choice. Again, we are so uh, eager to give uh, the government uh, the benefit of the doubt. And after 40 years of this, finally in 2017, we decided we can't give them the benefit of the doubt anymore. We have to do something. And, and, and that's what we're doing. But your question is, what was our response? Our response was initially to sanction them and to uh, criticize this action. But then we very quickly said, let's get back to uh, trying to build a relationship. According to your understanding of CCP, how such kind of uh, position, you know, how, how CCP takes such kind of position? 
from it's, the United States. I think they take it as a weakness. We consider it being generous and uh, considerate and trying to preserve the relationship. Uh, and I think the CCP takes it as saying that we aren't, we're afraid there might be a reaction or there's something in our own government that keeps us from taking what the CCP would have done. I mean, the, the Chinese government would have done something like that. During my time in government, we were very adamant to be very clear that you take that action, we're going to respond. You do that, we're going to respond. And uh, in, in the diplomatic world, you know, when you study diplomacy, um, the word transactional is a bad word. Reciprocity is a bad word, right? If, if they punch you in the face, our initial reaction is to kick you in the knee, right? Or is to respond. Um, the diplomats don't like that. They want to try to bring you over for a glass of wine and explain to you why punching me in the face was a bad idea. Well, we weren't communicating clearly with the Chinese when we did that. So you punch me in the face, I kick you in the knee. Uh, and I think it, it's, I don't like that approach. I hope that we can move up beyond that into something more, you know, great power-like. But until we get the, the CCP to understand that we're fed up, we're not going to do this anymore. That's their, that is the approach we're going to have to take. Transactional. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You mentioned how uh, the turning point of the U.S. government's uh, U.S policy in 2017. But before that, actually, I remembered uh, your speech at the CSIS mm. in December 2019. Right. You mentioned about uh, President Bill Clinton. When he first came into the post, he had a strong position on human rights issue in China. But later on, he took up an idea, if we do more trade with China, then it will make the political transformation in China. It will be good for Chinese people, you know, blah, blah, blah. But um, then obviously for the Trump administration said, you know, it's it failed. So to your understanding, why such kind of policy or idea failed? I don't think the Chinese Communist Party has the ability to change. Uh, what we saw what happened with um, that before Tiananmen, right? We had that, what Zhao Ziyang and Hua uh, Guofeng. Uh, we had leaders of the day realizing that as the USSR, the Soviet system was failing, they were next and that they needed to change. And so they actually, I think it took like a month of listening to the students' demands, uh, trying to appease the students, maybe making small changes to accommodate their desire to have a voice in their government. Uh, but that suddenly, you know, Deng Xiaoping and others said that we're not going to do that. And so they took a hard line, which is what authoritarian governments do. They don't negotiate, they dictate, uh, and they, uh, cracked down, and here we are today. I mean, imagine how good things would be in the PRC today had they taken a different tack and simply just began to gradually liberalize uh, the system. You remember the village, Wukan elections? Remember the Wukan village where they were experimenting with at least local level elections? Of course, that would build up to national level. Uh, this seemed like uh, it gave us all hope that, yeah, maybe the Communist Party understands that it, uh, if you want to avoid the fate of the Soviet Union, you're going to have to slowly allow people a voice in their government, and they let them pick who is their government, and, a, and, and a, a voice in how things are, and a choice of who their leaders are, a voice and a choice. And we were hopeful that with Wukan and these other things, that there was going to be a change. The only change we've seen, especially since 2012, is a change for even tighter and tighter and tighter uh, government, uh, and control the economy too, which is 
you mentioned about how the U.S. policy had a really dramatic turn, you know, in 2017. So what do you think the most important thing that uh, the United States realized about the CCP to make the change? I, I was in the Obama administration. I was in uniform. I was a, a one-star general in the Pentagon. Um, people knew then, uh, but the problem is they didn't know how to address it. They didn't know what to do. And um, it, it required a very radical change yeah, of policy, of speeches, uh, just about a mindset. Um, but we had an administration that I think wanted to try to keep things friendly and peaceful because of environmental concerns, which are valid, but you can't sacrifice larger national security to a small aspect, in this case, uh, environment and, and the rest. So. I think they tried to have both their cake and eat it too. They wanted to have a positive working relationship in the environmental world, while at the same time stopping militarization of the South China Sea. And, uh, you know, in 2001, they crashed into an American airplane operating peacefully in international airspace. They crashed into it. They nearly killed the 20-plus people on that plane um, for whatever reason. And what they're doing with Taiwan right now is they're, you know, creating situations where you will have an incident putting aircraft with forward-firing missiles on them out there to be intercepted by aircraft with forward-firing missiles. The intercepts are normally peaceful airplanes that are unarmed, and then a fighter looks to see, make sure that they're, being, they're operating safely and all that stuff. That, that's, that's how it's supposed to work. They shouldn't be launching fighters and bombers and offensive weapons into Taiwan. Um, that's been going on for a long time. So you asked about the turning point. I think the other side, we were seeing those things. The previous administration saw that, but they couldn't figure out what to do. And the new administration had a clean break, new people, and it was a good opportunity then with the national security strategy, with the economic relationship. And that's what got everybody excited, was that Bill Clinton allowed the PRC into the WTO, World Trade Organization, in 2001, with the promise that the Chinese would adapt their system to something that respects the rule of law, uh, honors fair and equal uh, access and all those things, and they, they didn't do it. And it took us 20 years to realize it. And it took Donald Trump, a businessman, to say, we cannot accept this, where, as he says, the largest ripoff of, you know, uh, another country in the history of the world, billions and billions of dollars through intellectual property theft, through bad business deals and all the rest. All those things came to a head with the change of administrations and a president and an administration uh, that was willing to take that risk. And here we are. And I think it was long overdue. So do you think uh, the previous administrations, they didn't do it? Is it because they are not so much, have so much understanding of the CCP, or they just maybe have other things, strings behind them or something? It's, I think it's both. I think there was a, a misunderstanding um, of the party. The, the two people who preceded me in the job I did at State Department uh, were not, didn't have a deep background on China. And that's okay. I mean, it's East Asia Pacific. It's not the China Bureau, and that's good. They had uh, great information on other parts, uh, but if the number one challenge was the dealing with this government, it would help to have people who had a solid background in that, to include language and all of those things, time, living in China, etc. And so uh, the current my replacement, a guy named Dan Crittenbrink, has all those things. We work together in the embassy in Beijing. Uh, and his Chinese language is much better than mine. 
he's got much more experience. So that's the right guy to have in that job today. Uh, he came out of Hanoi. He was the ambassador to Vietnam. Perfect. That's great. Unfortunately, the predecessors didn't quite have that same uh, experience, and that, I think, led to misunderstandings of how you deal with the CCP. As I said before, you've got to go to the lowest common denominator, and it's got to be transactional. You know, you give us one journalist in China, we'll give you one journalist in the U.S., and one diplomat, one diplomat, and that's how you have to build this relationship back up. Because if they promise you something, I guarantee you they won't follow through. There's no way you can get the CCP to follow through on promises because they don't care about credibility. They walk away from these commitments because they don't think it matters. It's, you know, when you're a great power, it matters. Your word matters. And if you don't live up to it, your credibility and your legitimacy is called into question. I hope, well, I know my replacement understands this, and I hope the folks in the White House today understand that too. Yeah, so talking about, you really had a lot of deep understanding of uh, how the CCP thinks and how they work. So maybe could you share with us, how did you come up to the understanding? Maybe, you know, some experience or stories? But, um, as, as I think I told you before, um, living in China, living in um, Beijing, and getting to travel. Here's a point that most Americans understand. Beijing is not China. The real China is in the hinterland, in the border areas. Uh, a trip I made to Changbai. Tsun, which is uh, North Korea. It's on the border of North Korea. Uh, it was, I learned a lot. Uh, I, I mentioned I spent a lot of time down in Yunnan uh, on the Burma border retracing Joe Stilwell, Vinner, General, General Joe Stilwell, uh, World War II exploits, building this, the road and all those things. Tiangao, Huang Dingyuan, right? Uh, the further you get from Beijing, uh, the more normal a place it becomes. So actually, that experience was very beneficial. This is where I got the idea that the Chinese people and the Chinese government aren't the same thing, never, never conflated to. CCP, Chinese people, different. If they would allow the Chinese people to vote, if the Chinese people had some say in how the government operates, you might be able to say that, but they don't. Um, then I went to the Pentagon, and I worked the same issue for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and I got to deal with the Chinese further in this regard. And that's where I did most of the negotiating. And this is where I learned to negotiate um, with the CCP. Distrust and verify. You need to always write in a verification regime. You have to say, you, you promise to do this. If you don't do that, then here is what's going to happen. If you remember the economic talks, trying to get out of this tariff tit for tat that we saw in May of 2000, and I think it was 18, maybe it was 19, Liu uh, He. Uh, and Lighthizer came up with an agreement. And it was actually a very good agreement, and it included verification regimes. Liu He went back to Beijing to try to sell this to Xi Jinping, and they wouldn't accept it, because he knew they, weren't, they don't plan to live up to this agreement. And so Liu He had to come back and apologize, and they had to go back to negotiations. So when you deal with them, you have to want to expect that they're not going to live up to their word. Uh, but I hope they do one day. You know, I hope they understand that their legitimacy as a government is at stake when they do this uh, and, and start acting like a big country. Yeah, so in, in your experience dealing with the uh, CCP, what do you think is their biggest um, a misunderstanding of the United States? Well, as I said earlier, we have not been very consistent. Um, I gave a presentation that I'll send you if you want to look at it uh, on... It's called the, the folly of engagement, the mistake of thinking that by engaging with the CCP that we can somehow work out a deal that benefits us all. 
every government that comes in thinks that they are the ones that can get a deal with the Chinese that will be ironclad and will function. Every two, four, maybe longer years, we change out. I left, my predecessor came in. We try to stay in contact to share with them what we agreed to, so they can't take advantage of us, but we don't. But Sui Tenkai spent eight years, the ambassador to the U.S. spent eight years as the ambassador in the United States. And he, yeah, he has some time in Japan, but mostly his experience is in working with the U.S. That long experience of dealing with the Americans should result uh, in a better understanding of how to deal with us. Um, but with the advent of the previous administration, the Trump administration, we changed the rules of that game and it left the Chinese unable. They didn't understand how to deal with this at that point because we were simply defending ourselves for the first time ever. I think they're still trying to understand now how to deal with us, how to still sign up for everything and do nothing and get us to stop tariffing and uh, speaking openly about the Olympics, about genocide, about all those things that we have to date been very quiet about. So I think there's still confusion in China about this new approach the United States has taken. Um, they probably understand, but they don't want to change the way things have been going because I don't think they can. It's, you know, the economy is really starting to take a downturn, uh, and to comply with their agreements with the WTO would it just make it even worse. They would have to play on a level playing field, and they can't afford that. They would have to stop stealing research and development data from American universities and other places uh, and do it on their, on their own, and they can't afford to do that. So they're kind of in a bind. And if I was them, I would negotiate. So, so from what you said, basically the Chinese Communist Party, they just don't want to change themselves, but they wanted to try to figure out different administrations in the United States how to deal with that so that they can get, the, get their way. Correct. So they don't have to change figure out a way to get this new administration to go back to the old ways, where we allowed them to continue to violate agreements and those things. I, I collect, every time Xi Jinping says, we will continue to reform and open up, you know, Gaga Kaifang, we will continue to do that while doing the exact opposite. Whenever, he, whenever you see headlines says, in people's daily, it says, we will continue to reform and open up, you know the opposite's true. They're going to make it even more difficult to do business in China because they think that's the only way that they can survive. All right, so that's General David Stilwell. How do you think of um, his sharing of the lessons learned uh, about uh, dealing with CCP? So a couple of things, right? He mentioned uh, about how to use the diplomacy with the Communist China. It should be transactional diplomacy uh, versus uh, a traditional diplomacy. And uh, I think the point is do not just to listen to what CCP says, but to take a look at what they do. And uh, this is so true because um, in China, people, you know, for people uh, from mainland China, they just privately, they would say this, if not publicly. CCP can say the best thing in the world, but does the most horrible things of the world. So that's what CCP is about. And also, I think this type of uh, transactional diplomacy is also another kind of uh, peace through strength. I don't know if you will agree with me or not. The good examples are like, you remember John Kerry made all the way fly into China, but he was stuck 
in a long distance call near, near in Tianjin near Beijing, right? And he's there already, but they didn't allow him to just to talk in person. And also remember the negotiation um, in the Anchorage, Alaska, where the CCP's uh, foreign administrator just uh, you know criticized United States for like sixteen minutes. So when when you just try to show you know goodwill, the CCP won't respect and won't respond to such goodwill. It would only manipulate your goodwill. Because why? As Dave, um, General David Stilwell said, because CCP does not respect promise and does not care about credibility or goodwill. So we cannot just believe any promise made by the CCP, but have to look at the actions and the results. And uh, there are so many examples that um, you know, people already feel the pain of it, right? The WTO, what happens to South China Sea, and uh, these public companies listed in the United, United uh, Stock Exchange, and also Hong Kong, such painful lesson. The CCP won't respect any treaties, any promise that it made. So, you know, to normal people in the United States, Americans are just very kind and uh, we will, you know, you will trust the person until the person proves to be that he or she does not de de deserve your trust, right? But towards CCP, you cannot use your normal, reasonable thinking, you know. You just do not trust CCP until it proves to me otherwise. So, yeah, that's, that's the lesson. And we hope that um, more the United States politicians can learn that. All right, next we'll give you uh, updates from China, from Shanghai. In Beijing on Sunday, it was the May 1st, and it was the beloved May Day celebration normally in Beijing, in China. However, in this May Day, Beijing just uh, started the day with uh, standing for people to stand in line for the latest round of mandatory COVID testing. Beijing imposed bans on restaurant eat, restaurant dining, shut down theme parks, and issued new requirements for recent negative test results to assess uh, for people to access public venues. And the Chinese state-run media Global Times newspaper sought to normalize massive nucleic acid testing as a permanent feature of life. Uh, raising, uh, it raised uh, apprehension, apprehension about a possible citywide lockdown in Beijing. The Global Times on Sunday, tried to quell rising panic in Beijing by portraying massive COVID testing as an unremarkable new facet of daily life. The newspaper mentioned that other Chinese metropolitan, uh, metropolitan cities, including Shanghai, Guangzhou, Shenzhen, and Hangzhou, have announced similar guidelines to normalize nucleic acid testing. The article also 
touted the tech hub city of Shenzhen, which is in the southern China, as a shining sample of city avoiding lockdowns with aggressive nucleic acid testing. But Shenzhen did not. Um, but Shenzhen did go into lockdown in March. So again, it's just lying. So again, let's give an update on Shanghai. We've shared with you, you know, some just horrific videos from Shanghai. It's very sad, and the latest one showed an old man getting stuffed into a body bag, and who's dragged from a care facility, a nursing home, to cremation. The truck driver actually discovered he was still alive while they are trying to stuff him in the bag. So. That what happened? That happened on May first, on Sunday, a nursing home in Putuo District, which is in the kind of the center of Shanghai City, called the New Long March Welfare Institute, arranged for funeral home personnel to send away an old man who has been putting in a body bag. But the staff of the corpse truck. Found that the old man could still move and asked the staff of the nursing home to verify. After the negotiation between the both parties, the old man was eventually sent back to the nursing home together with a body bag. Let's take a look. So the yellow bag was the body bag. They are trying to stuff him into it. Now they are discovered he's still alive. And they were saying he's alive. He's alive. I saw it. Don't cover him anymore. And he's positive. Don't get near to him. So that's what happened. The whole process was discovered、uh, by the people of Shanghai, and some netizens shared the video on social media. According to a report by the Chinese media Dongfang.com, both the New Long March Welfare Institute, the nursing home, and the Putuo District Civil Affairs Bureau confirmed that the clips circulating on the internet are true, and stated that the elderly in the clips have been transferred had been transferred to the hospital for treatment, and the current situation has stabilized. The Putuo District of Shanghai also said that it would file a case against the officials and the doctors involved. But before they had announcement, the funeral home quickly praised the staff's work attitude of、uh, respecting for life and awarded each person a bonus of 500 RMB. The Shanghai official did not mention in the inc、uh, of the incident at the press conference. But only claimed that the situation of the、uh, pandemic prevention and the control in Shanghai was stable and improving. So we also shared with you、uh, last week about a viral video called、uh, with the title of "The Sound of April." Do you still remember? It's it has no like comments, only just recording the real voices. Of people in Shanghai about what they are going through. Now another video called "The Scream of Shanghai" is going viral again. But the voice 
um, people's voice in this new video is angrier than what's in the sound of April. The CCP authorities continues to impose inhumane lockdown of the city of Shanghai and the tragedies just continue. So this video collect the people of Shanghai, how they have been pushed to the, the borderline and have been expressing their voices of resistance in various ways. So let's just take a look at this video. It's a, just a, a clip of it. Okay, so that's, um, I just uh, collected a few clips from uh, this video. So remember, you know, you probably don't understand the voiceover, but uh, there was the subtitle. And uh, the video began with a song, and actually it's a CCP song, but uh, people in China, they, change, they just uh, um, rewrite the, the lyric saying that the sky of the Communist Party is a dark sky. The people of the Communist Party are shameless. And they also saying before the bandits were in the mountains, now the bandits are in the police. And uh, also someone was saying that uh, for people in Shanghai had to just line up in the heavy rain to take the testing and that in the saying that we are not we are not even you know cannot compare to a dog how a dog was treated and uh, so you can hear how angry people are so and the CCPs uh, what they are doing you know is awakening a lot of people and the people are demanding like why you in, impose this type of policy you know is there any law all right so yeah that's what's happening in shanghai in china and hopefully more and more people are waking up to you know what's really going on and to do something all right so before we go to the joke i wanted to yeah take a look at some of the um, comments and uh, James said, uh, imagine the psychology of those who work in the CCP. That's so true. 
the psychological uh, psychological problem of those working CCP in people, you know, a lot of people are split. They just it's totally like it could, it could be, you know, a lot of people had a mental problems as you could imagine, and. Um, Real truth, Sherry, this was all planned. Keeping people in lockdown is cruel. I have no words. That's true. And uh, indeed, they, they have their agenda for locking people down. So let's see more comments. Hamatega character saying so much horrible things going on there. CCP is going against the science. Yes, they are not only against the science; they are again going against humanity, as uh, Shanghai um, people are shouting out. You know, where are you? Are you human? Are you human? Do you ha is there any humanity there? So, you know, you can feel the pain that people are going through. James, California said the CCP must be abolished. Yes. And uh, oh, real truth, Sherry saying, when Kathy, I wasn't getting your notifications. I'm glad to see all is well for you both. Uh, yeah, thank you, Sherry. Um, so unfortunately, this happens to a lot of people. So yeah, one, don't you just try this. Unsubscribe from our channel, then resubscribe. And also click on the bell to see if that would improve the situation. So hopefully that will work. And, um, and Time Tanga character saying great lesson. Yes, I think you're talking about uh, the, the public companies listed, the Chinese public companies listed in the United States, right? Yeah, it is a good lesson to learn. So we hopefully um, you know, our administrations, the politicians will keep that in mind and also uh, be smarter dealing with the CCP. All right, so um, I think that now I will go to the joke and it is uh, provided by Wei. So although he cannot be with you tonight, uh, he's still thinking of you, so let's um, hear this joke. So in view of the food tension caused by the war between Russia and Ukraine, UNESCO, which represents uh, United Nations Education, Science, and the Cultural Organization, organized a discussion with children from all over the world. And uh, the speaker asked children to give, your, give their personal views on the issue of food scarcity. After the question, the children were encouraged to speak up if there's anything that they don't understand in this question. So an American kid was the first to raise hand and saying, excuse me, what does scarcity mean? And then followed by a Korean, North Korean child raised his hand timidly and saying, uh, what does food mean? And then a Chinese kid 
raised his hand with a very curious expression and says, "Excuse me, what does personal ex what does a personal opinion mean?" All right, so. Yeah, from that it's it's a joke, but actually it has a pretty profound meaning, right? So in Korea, in North Korea, people just going on hungry constantly. They don't know the kid doesn't know what food is. And in China, there's no personal opinion under the tight control of CCP. And in the United States, kids doesn't know what scarcity means, and you know why. All right, so I think that's all for today. Thank you for being with me. And uh, remember, if you have not yet clicked the like, please uh, hit the like button and uh, please help us spread word by uh, sharing our video. So take care. I will see you on Wednesday. Good night.